Welcome to a continued reading of Thoughts on Religious Experience by Archibald Alexander, Councils of the Aged to the Young. Now, whatever may be the infirmity or moral defect which cleaves to us, it is odious in the sight of God and tends to grieve the Holy Spirit. In just judgment, we are left to darkness, barrenness and misery, because we have not sufficiently desired a deliverance from sin, but have made vain excuses for our own faults. I would then counsel you, especially, to cherish the motions of the Holy Comforter. By his divine influences alone, a good conscience can be maintained. And if you are sensible that you have grieved the Spirit, so that you are left comfortless, never rest until you again experience peace and joy, which is the fruit of his indwelling. 15. Cultivate peace. Next to the blessing of peace with God and in our own conscience is that of peace with our fellow men. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. And again, follow peace with all men. The true source of all the wars, contentions and disturbances which are in the world is the pride, the envy, the covetousness and the other evil passions of our nature. Eradicate these, and in their place introduce pure and kind affections, and you will experience a double peace, peace within and peace without. Every Christian temper is friend friendly to peace. I know indeed that Christ says that he came not to bring peace but a sword, but he refers not to the nature of his religion, but to the event which he foresaw, which would occur from the perverse opposition of men to that which is good. The genuine spirit and tendency of the gospel is beautifully and emphatically expressed in the angelic anthem sung by the celestial choir of the nativity of our Saviour. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, good will to men. All the adopted sons of God are sons of peace, and are peacemakers. Live in peace, says Paul, and the God of peace shall be with you. Humility, meekness, and benevolence must from the nature of the course, have a mighty influence in producing and maintaining peace. For as the Apostle Peter argues, who will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? No system was ever so well adapted to produce universal peace as Christianity. And the only reason why this effect has not, was, has not followed its reception everywhere is that its true spirit has not been imbibed. Just so far as this blessed system is cordially embraced, it cuts up by the roots all causes of contention, except that which has for its subject sin and error. It teaches us not only to love our friends and brethren, but also our bitterest enemies, to return blessing for cursing and kindness for ill treatment. Endeavour then to cherish habitually those kind affections which lead to peace. And while you seek peace in your own souls, make it an object to promote peace in the world and covet the blessedness which is pronounced to belong to peacemakers. Their high honour is to be denominated the sons of God. 16. As man is born to sorrow, as the sparks fly upwards, as no situation is exempt from the hours of adversity, I would give it as a necessary counsel to learn to bear affliction with fortitude and resignation. 
To dream of escaping what is appointed unto all would be to fall willfully into a dangerous delusion. Every man is vulnerable in so many points that nothing short of a perpetual miracle could shield anyone from the strokes of adversity. Indeed, piety of the most exalted kind does not secure its possessor from affliction and persecution. Christ himself suffered while in the world and has left his followers a perfect example of holy fortitude and filial submission to the will of God. When sorely pressed with the inconceivable load of our sins so that his human soul could not have sustained it unless supported by the divine nature, his language was, not my will, but thine be done. Those afflictions which are allotted to the people of God are necessary parts of salutary discipline, intended to purify them from the dross of sin and to prepare them for the service of God here and the enjoyment of God in the world to come. They are therefore to them no penal judgments, but fatherly chastisements, which though not joyous but grievous for the present, afterwards work for them the peaceable fruits of righteousness. But whatever may be our moral and spiritual condition, whether we are friends or enemies to God, we must be subject to various afflictions. This is a dying world. The nearest and dearest friends must part. Death sunders the tenderest ties and often pierces the susceptible heart with a keener anguish by directing the mortal stroke to a dear companion or child than if it had fallen on our own head. When I see youth rejoicing in the sanguine hopes and brilliant prospects which the deceitful world spreads out before them, I am prevented from sympathizing with their happy feelings by the foresight of a speedy end to all their earthly pleasures. Their laughter will be converted into mourning. Their day of bright sunshine will soon be overcast with dark clouds. All their brilliant prospects will be obscured and the overwhelming gloom of sorrow will envelop them. It is indeed no part of wisdom to torment our minds with vain terrors of evils which are merely possible. Many persons suffer more in the apprehension of calamities than they would if they were present. The imagination represents scenes of adversity in a hue darker than the reality. In regard to such evils, our Saviour has taught us not to yield to useless anxieties about the future, but to trust to providence. Let the morrow take care of itself. But that to which I would bring my youthful readers is a state of mind prepared for adversity of whatever kind it may be, that they may not be taken by surprise when calamity falls upon them. And when the dark day of adversity arrives, be not dismayed, but put your trust in the Lord and look to him for strength to endure whatever may be laid upon you. Never permit yourselves to entertain hard thoughts of God on account of any of his dispensations. They may be dark and mysterious, but they are all wise and good. What we cannot understand now, we shall be privileged to know hereafter. Exercise an uncomplaining submission to the will of God as developed in the events of providence. Believe steadfastly that all things are under the government of wisdom and goodness. 
Remember that whatever sufferings you may be called to endure, they are always less than your sins deserve. And consider that these afflictive dispensations are fraught with rich spiritual blessings. They are not only useful but necessary. We should cherish, perish with a wicked world if a kind father did not use, make use of the rod to claim us from our wanderings. Besides, there is no situation in which we can more glorify God than when in the furnace of affliction. The exercise of faith and humble resignation with patience and fortitude under the pressure of heavenly, heavy, heavy calamity is most pleasing to God and illustrates clearly the excellency of religion which is able to bear up the mind and even render it cheerful in the midst of scenes of trouble. Bear then with cheerful submission the load which may be laid upon you. And learn from Paul to rejoice even in the midst of tribulation. And not only bear your cross with cheerful resignation, but endeavor to extract from sorrow a rich spiritual blessing. While enjoying such an effectual means of grace, improve it to the utmost to promote growth in the divine life. Be willing to suffer any pain which will render you more holy. Although we naturally desire uninterrupted prosperity, yet if the desire of our hearts was always given to us, it would prove ruinous. And when schooled in adversity, you will be yet qualified to sympathize with the children of sorrow, and better skilled in affording them comfort than if you had no experience of trouble. 17. My next counsel is that you set a high value upon your time. Time is short and its flight is rapid. The swiftness of the lapse of time is proverbial in all languages. In scripture, the life of man is compared to a multitude of things which quickly pass away after making their appearance, as to a post, a weaver's shuffle, a vapor, a shadow, etc. All the works of man must be performed in time, and whatever acquisition is made of any good, it must be obtained in time. Time, therefore, is not only short, but precious. Everything is suspended on its improvement, and it can only be improved when present. And it is no sooner present than it is gone so that whatever we do must be done quickly. The precious gift is sparingly parceled out by moments, but the succession of these is rapid and uninterrupted. Nothing can impede or retard the current of this stream, whether we awake or sleep, whether occupied or idle, whether we attend to the fact or not, we are borne along by a silent but irresistible force. Our progressive motion in time may be compared to the motion of the planet on which we dwell, of which we are entirely insensible, or to that of a swift sailing ship which produces the illusion that all other objects are in motion while we seem to be stationary. So in the journey of life, we pass from stage to stage, from infancy to childhood, from childhood to youth, from youth to mature age, and finally, 
Here we are aware of it, we find ourselves declining towards the last stage of earthly existence. The freshness and buoyancy of youth soon passes away. The autumn of life with its sea leaf soon arrives, and next and last, if disease or accident do not cut short our days, old age with its grey hairs, its wrinkles, if debility and pains comes on apace. This period is described by the wise man as one in which men are commonly disposed to be querulous and to acknowledge that the days draw nigh in which they have no pleasure. The keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow themselves and the grinders cease because they are few and those that look out of the windows are darkened. When men rise up at the noise of the bird, when all the daughters of music are brought low, there shall be fears, and the almond tree shall flourish, and the grasshopper be a burden. Time wasted can never be recovered. No man ever possessed the same moment twice. We are indeed exhorted to redeem the time. But this relates to a right improvement of that which is to come. For this is the only possible way by which we can redeem what is irrevocably past. The counsels which I would offer to the young on this subject are think frequently and seriously on the inestimable value of time. Never forget that all that is dear and worthy of pursuit must be accomplished in the short span of time allotted to us here. Meditate also profoundly and often on the celerity of the flight of time. Now you are in the midst of youthful bloom. But soon this season will only exist in the dim shades of recollection, and unless it has been well improved, of bitter regret. If you will make a wise improvement of your time, you must be prompt. Seize the fugitive moments as they fly, for otherwise they will pass away before you have commenced the work which is appropriated to them. Diligence and constancy are essential to the right improvement of time. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Work while it is called today. Walk while you have the light, for the dark night rapidly approaches when no man can be done, no work can be done. Let everything be done in this season. There is a time for all things, and let all things be done in order. The true order of things may be determined by their relative importance and by the urgency of the case, or the loss which would probably sustain by neglect. If you would make the most of your time, learn to do one thing at once, and endeavour so to perform every work as to accomplish it in the best possible manner. As you receive but one moment at once, it is vain to think of doing more than one thing at a time, and if any work deserves your attention at all, it deserves to be well done, Confusion, hurry, and heed heedlessness often so mar business that it would have been better to omit it altogether. Beware of devolving the duty of today on tomorrow. This is called procrastination, which is said justly to be the thief of time. Remember that every day and every hour has its own appropriate work. But if that which should be done this day is deferred until future time, to say the least, there must be an inconvenient 
accumulation of duties in future. But as tomorrow is to everybody uncertain, to suspend the acquisition of an important object on such a contingency may be the case of losing forever the opportunity of receiving it. The rule of sound discretion is never to put off till tomorrow what ought to be done today. 18. Cherish and diligently cultivate genuine piety. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Early piety is the most beautiful spectacle in the world. Without piety, all your morality, however useful to men, is but a shadow. It is a branch without a root. Religion, above every other acquisition, enriches and adorns the mind of man, and it is especially congenial with the natural, natural susceptibilities of the youthful mind. The vivacity and versatility of youth, the tenderness and ardour of the affections in this age, exhibit piety to the best advantage. How delightful it is to see the bosoms of the young swelling with the lively emotions of pure devotion. How beautiful is the tear of penitence or of holy joy which glistens in the eye of tender youth. Think not, dear young people, that true religion will detract from your happiness. It is a reproach cast upon your maker to indulge such a thought. It cannot be. A God of goodness never required anything of his creatures which did not tend to their true felicity. Party may indeed lead you to exchange the pleasures of the theatre and ballroom for the purer joys of the church and prayer meeting. It may turn your attention from books of mere idle fancy and fiction to the word of God, which to a regenerated soul is found to be sweeter than honey and more excellent than the choicest gold. But this will add to your happiness rather than diminish it. We would then affectionately and earnestly exhort and entreat you to remember now your Creator in the days of your youth. This will be your best security against all the dangers and temptations to which you are exposed. This will secure to you the favour of God which is life, and His loving kindness which is better than life. Delay not your conversion. Every day is lost time which is not spent in the service of God. Besides, Procrastination has proved ruinous to many. Eternity is at hand. The judgment day must be met. And how can we appear there without piety? This is our only preparation and passport for heaven. Dear youth, be wise. And secure an inheritance among the saints in light. God invites you to be reconciled. Christ extends his arms of mercy to secure you. Angels are waiting to rejoice at your conversion and to become your daily and nightly guardians. The doors of the church will be open to receive you. The ministers of the gospel and all the company of believers will hail your entrance and will welcome you. The ministers of the gospel and all the company of believers will hail your entrance and will welcome you to the precious ordinances of God's house. And finally remember that now is the accepted time and the day of salvation. 19. Seek divine direction and aid 
by incessant fervent prayer. You need grace to help you every day. Your own wisdom is folly, and your own strength weakness, and your own righteousness altogether insufficient. It is not in man that the walketh to direct his steps. But if you lack wisdom, you are permitted to ask, and you have a gracious promise that you shall receive. Whatever we need will be granted if we humbly and believingly ask for it. Ask, and ye shall receive. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Faith and prayer are our chief resource under all the various and heavy afflictions of this life. When, other, when all other refuges fail, God will hide his people who seek him in his secret pavilion and shelter them under the shadow of his wings. Prayer is essential to the existence and growth of the spiritual life. It is the breath of the new man. By this means he obtains quick relief from innumerable evils and draws down from heaven blessings of the richest and sweetest kind. Possess your minds fully of the persuasion that prayer is efficacious when offered in faith and with importunity to obtain the blessings which we need. God has made himself known as a hearer of prayer. Yea, he has promised that we shall have as far as may be for his glory and our good whatever we ask. The most important events may be brought about by prayer. One righteous man by fervent and effectual prayer, has been able to shut heaven and open it again. How often did Moses, by his prayers, avert the divine wrath from the people of Israel? That man who has access to a throne of grace will never lack anything which is really needful. God will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. That he will be inquired of by the house of Israel for this thing, that he may do it for them. Banish, as most unreasonable, the idea that prayer is a dull or melancholy business. Such a sentiment must have been invented by Satan, for it never could have been suggested by reason or taught by experience. Intercourse with the greatest and best of all beings must be a source of exalted pleasure, and surely man can have no greater honour and privilege conferred upon him than to be admitted to converse intimately and confidentially with a God whom angels adore. The experience of every saint attests that it is good to draw near to God, and that one day in his courts is better than a thousand. I need not be afraid, therefore, to counsel the young, to cultivate the spirit of prayer, and to be constant in this exercise. Pray without ceasing. Be instant in prayer. It will not spoil your pleasures, but will open for you new sources of enjoyment, far more refined and satisfactory than any which prayerless persons can possess. Prayer is the only method by which intercourse between heaven and earth can be kept open. Often, too, in the performance of this duty, a taste of heaven is brought down to earth, and the pious worshipper anticipates in some degree those joys which are ineffable and eternal. 
Prayer will, moreover, be your most effectual guard against sin and the power of temptation. For Satan trembles when he sees the weaker saint upon his knees. 20. I conclude my counsels to the young by a serious and affectionate recommendation to everyone who reads these pages to make immediate preparation for death. I know that gay youth are unwilling to hear the subject mentioned. There is nothing which casts a greater damp upon their spirits than the solemn fact that death must be encountered and that no earthly possessions or circumstances can secure us from becoming his victims on, one, on any day. But if it is acknowledged that this formidable evil is inevitable and that the tenor by which we hold our grasp of life is very fragile, why should we act so unreasonably, and I may say madly, as to shut our eyes against the danger? If indeed there was no way of preparing to meet this event, there might be some reason for turning away our thoughts from immediate destruction. But if by attention and exertion it is possible to make preparation for death, then nothing can be conceived more insane than to refuse to consider our latter end. How often are we called to witness the decease of youth in the midst of all their pleasures and prospects? Such scenes have been exhibited within the observation of all of you. Dear friends and companions have been snatched away from the side of some of you. The grave has closed upon many whose prospects of long life were as favorable as those of their survivors. Now, my dear young friends, what has so frequently happened in relation to so many others may take place with regard to some of you. This year, you may be called to bid farewell to all your earthly prospects and all your beloved relatives. The bare possibility of such an event ought to have the effect of engaging your most serious attention and of leading you to immediate preparation. Do not ask what preparation is necessary. I answer... Do you ask what preparation is necessary? I answer, reconciliation with God and a meekness for the employments and enjoyments of the heavenly state. Preparation for death includes repentance towards God for all our sins, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and reliance on his atoning sacrifice, regeneration of heart and reformation of life and finally a lively exercise of piety accompanied with a comfortable assurance of the divine favour. In short, genuine and lively piety forms the essence of the needed preparation. With this your death will be safe, and your happiness after death secure. But to render a deathbed not only safe but comfortable, you must have a strong faith, and clear evidence that your sins are forgiven, and that you have passed from death unto life. Be persuaded then, before you sleep, to give sleep to your eyes, to commence your return unto God, from whom, like lost sheep, you have strayed. Prepare to meet your God. Be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Seek deliverance from the fear of death, by a believing application to him, who came on purpose to deliver us from this bondage. With his presence and guidance, we need fear no evil. 
even while passing through the gloomy valley and shadow of death. He is able by his rod and his staff to comfort us and to make us conquerors over this last enemy. Counsels to Christian mothers. When I address myself to Christian mothers, I do not mean to intimate that those who cannot with propriety be thus addressed stand in need of admonition. Alas, that in a Christian country there should be mothers who have nothing of the Spirit of Christ. Young persons often promise themselves that they will attend to religion after they are married and settled in the world. How preposterous is this! It ought rather to be their resolution not to think of entering into a state involving such weighty responsibilities and the exercise of so many virtues until they have become possessors of true religion. Without piety, how is it possible for any woman rightly to fulfill the duties of a wife, and especially of a mother? Some correct views on this subject probably led the legislators of one of the provinces of Holland, as I read somewhere, to enact a law, that whenever any persons applied to be united in marriage, they should produce evidence that they were in full communion of the church. But this was a dangerous misapplication of a sound principle. Just as in the case of civil rulers, it is exceedingly important that they who are appointed to rule over men should be truly pious. But it is a sad mistake in legislation to make the profession of religion a qualification for office. But while I would not have a law requiring piety as a qualification for entering into the bond of matrimony, I would still insist upon it that no woman destitute of religion is fit to become a wife and mother. Only think of it, an irreligious mother. If it were not so common, the very expression would excite emotions similar to those which we experience when we hear of an irreligious minister of the gospel. I address Christian mothers because from them only can I expect a patient hearing. I address Christian mothers because all mothers ought to be sincere Christians. Is there a person on earth whose mind is so perverted by prejudice as not to conceive a congruity between piety and this tender relation? It was formerly a current opinion, even among infidels in Virginia, that religion was an ornament and safeguard to a woman. I knew one distinguished man who had renounced all belief in the Christian religion himself, who encouraged it in his wife, and furnished her with all the necessary means of attending church. And when one of his friends complained to him that his wife was becoming religious, which gave him great concern, he told him that he was a fool, for that nothing was more suitable and desirable than that a wife should be pious. Even infidels are constrained, like the demons of old, to give their testimony in favor of Christ. Many irreligious men desire to obtain wives of genuine piety, and few intelligent men in our country would be pleased with a female infidel. Such a character was so rare in Virginia 40 years ago, when infidelity abounded among the higher classes of men, that when a certain lady was pointed out as the advocate of deatistical opinions, it created a revulsion of feeling in almost every mind. Here I take pleasure in saying that in no class of society anywhere 
have I found examples of more pure and elevated piety among the ladies than among the ladies of Virginia. I have reason to believe that these examples have rather been increased than diminished since I left my native state. It may be, in an important sense, be said that the Commonwealth has been preserved from utter destruction by the prudence, purity, and piety of Virginian mothers. They have been the salt which has attested the progress of moral corruption in the mass of society. Accordingly, there is no country in the world, perhaps, where mothers are so much respected by their children and have so great an influence over them. Ask almost any young Virginian where he will look for the brightest examples of moral excellence, and his thoughts will turn at once to the character of pious females, and perhaps to his own mother, if she happens to be pious. I recollect a young gentleman who, although he had an uncommonly pious mother, broke over all the restraints of his education and became a professed infidel and the advocate of licentiousness in its vilest forms. But a gracious God heard the unceasing prayers of his mother, and by means somewhat unusual, he was converted from the error of his ways. In speaking of his former career, which he evidently did with shame and humility, he said, I could get over all arguments in defense of religion but one, and that I never could obviate, which was a pious example and conversation of my mother. When I had fortified myself against the truth by the aid of Bolingbroke, Hume, and Voltaire, yet whenever I thought of my mother, I had the secret conviction which nothing could remove, that there was a reality in religion. I could soon fill my paper with salutary precepts from others. And this is not exactly what is wanted. Knowledge as to maternal duty is widely diffused. The theory of education as it falls under the direction of others is perhaps sufficiently understood by most. What I aim at is to stir up their pure minds by way of remembrance. Or in other words, to arouse them to the consideration of the importance of the station which they occupy, and to persuade them to exert that influence which they possess. I have often heard pious females complain that they had little or nothing in their power, and they felt as if they were almost useless members of society. This is an egregious miscalculation. Their influence is silent and spreads imperceptibly but it is real and effective. Piety is like light, which cannot be hid. The more it seeks concealment and retires from public notice, the more brightly it shines. Female influence only ceases or operates unfavorably when men, women depart from their own proper sphere and when they endeavor to obtrude themselves on the notice and admiration of the public. As we are shocked with infidelity in a female, so female ambition is odious. Let the devoted mother exert herself in her own proper sphere, which is in the retirement of the domestic circle, and in constant and devout attendance on the worship of God. Let her look well to the affairs of her household. Let her manifest her benignity and forbearance in the steady government of her children and servants. 
that has set an example of order, neatness, industry, and hospitality, and she will have enough to do. Every hour, and almost every minute, will furnish opportunity for the exercise of some virtue, and that I, which goes everywhere, will graciously notice and bring to light too those acts which are cheerfully and conscientiously performed. A mother cannot be placed in a more interesting field of labour than in the midst of a large circle of children. Here is her appropriate fear of action. Here she has work enough to occupy her heart and hands. But some will be ready to think that this is a narrow field in which to labour. They wish to act on a larger scale and do something which will tell on the destinies of men, something more intimately connected with the conversion of the world. Some few women, by possession of peculiar talents, and by being placed in peculiar circumstances, have been able to accomplish so much that the world has been filled with their fame. Such was the brilliant course of Mrs. Hannah Moore, who by her benevolent exertions and by her writings became the benefactress of the human race. And such is now the luminous orbit of, in which Mrs. Fry moves. But it falls to the lot of very few of either sex to do good on what may be called a national scale. And if all should aim at such achievements, very little would be done. Much the larger part of the female sex must be contented to cultivate the small garden which providence has committed to them. But as mothers in ancient Israel were solicitous to bear sons, in hope that they may enjoy the honor and unspeakable pleasure of giving birth to the promised Messiah, so mothers now may cherish the pleasing hope that of the first fruit of their womb, God will raise up men of renown, eminent ministers, devoted missionaries, distinguished philanthropists, wise statements, or even men of humble, exemplary piety in retired life. Hannah waited upon God for her Samuel, and no doubt before the child was born, she consecrated him to God, from whom she received him. And when she embraced him in her arms, and nursed him at her breast, she continually darted her petitions for God's blessing upon his own precious gift. And oh, how richly was she rewarded. I have read or heard that someone asked an uncommonly devout woman how it happened that all her children became pious at such an early age. The good woman modestly disclaimed all merit or agency in the fair, but said she, as children as I had nursed, I never took one of them to my breast to afford it the necessary nation, but at the same time I lifted up my heart in prayer to God, for his blessing on the dear little infant. Would not this be a good rule for mothers universally to observe? Who can tell what the effect would be on the next generation? The question is often asked, by whom shall Jacob arise? One answers one thing and one another. But if I may be permitted to give a partial answer though I believe a true one, I would say by pious mothers. Yes, as a woman had the unspeakable blessing of being the mother of our Lord and Saviour, so women, collectively, shall be the mother of the Church. Ten thousand noises 
Lois's and Eunice's will, at the same time, be training their little Timothys on the knee, and with sweet and persuasive speech, instilling into their opening minds the words of those holy scriptures, which are able to make them wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. A genuine and thorough reformation must commence in the family, which is the foundation of all social institutions, civil and religious. Here is the root whence springs a whole tree with all its spreading and towering branches. And if true religion, to be general, must begin in the domestic circle, to whom will belong the chief agency and the most distinguished honour, and deadly to pious mothers, theirs must be the hands which plant the precious seed. There's the prayers and tears which water a growing plant. There's the kind, seasonable, and well-adapted instructions which distill into the tender, susceptible mind like the gentle rain on the tender grass or the more imperceptible dew upon the thirsty plant. Those are not the most important lectures which are, with solemn pomp, delivered on the, in the schools, but those which flow sweetly from the affectionate lips of mothers to their docile and interested group of little ones gathered around their knees. No eloquence equals that of a sensible and pious mother, because no impressions made by human speech are so deep, indelible, and indelible. These lessons, whether she knows it or not, she is engraving on fleshy tablets, from which the inscription can never wholly be obliterated. Impression after impression may be made on the same, but these have the advantage of being first and deepest, and when all the others are gone, these will be left. In visiting a family belonging to my charge in Philadelphia, I observed a very brisk but old woman bringing chips into the house in her apron. I asked the lady of the house who it was. It is my mother, said she, but she no longer knows me. Upon inquiry, I found that she had forgotten everything except what had occurred in her early life. And though she had left Switzerland when a girl of 14, and had not spoken the German language since that time, yet she now repeats her German prayers aloud every night. It would be difficult to draw a definite line of distinction between a good mother and a good wife. The character of the latter must have an important bearing on that of the former. For a woman to perform her part well when united with a worthy and affectionate husband is comparatively easy. But when a pious woman of refined and susceptible feelings is connected with a man whose true character and temper have been destroyed by habits of intoxication, when she is treated with brutal tyranny, and even cruelty, to preserve equanimity, and to perform the duties of an obedient, respectful wife, requires the exercise of much self-denial. Such a situation is one peculiarly painful and trying to a pious mother, but it is one to which many excellent women in our day have been subjected. But the greater the trial, the more grace is wanted, and the brighter the character which is enabled with meekness and fortitude to bear up under such a burden. If such calamity should come on a woman of refined feelings at once, it would be overwhelming, 
but she is gradually prepared for the worst and learns to discipline her passions so as to exhibit no temper unsuitable to her station and the tender relation of a wife. She avoids reproaches, and in her mouth there are no reproofs. Some change in her appearance, and occasional spells of bitter weeping when alone will not escape the jealous eye of a drunkard. And it is not improbable that such a symptoms of deep distress as these will only serve to evoke his ire and cause him to rage more furiously than in the influence of his inebriating cups. And what can she say to her children as they become capable of observation? She never mentions the subject of them. It can be avoided. And when necessary, with no remarks that would tend to lessen their respect for an unworthy parent. She conceals them from his children and the faults and ill treatment of the father as much as possible. And to all other persons, however intimate their mutual friendship, her lips are sealed. This is the difficulty of patiently bearing this heavy burden, that it must be borne alone in silence, without the usual relief derived from venting our sorrows into the bosom of a faithful, sympathizing friend. I know of no condition in human life, free from guilt, which is more deplorable than that of a lady of education, piety, and sensibility tied to a brutal husband who is seldom in his right mind, or who, though for a season he may refrain, yet has his paroxysms of the worst species of insanity to which our race is subject. This leads me to remark that the very best view which a wife can take of such a case is to consider it a real madness and to feel and act just as if it was the effect of some physical cause. However difficult the practice of duty may be in such circumstances, I have observed not a few examples of such consummate prudence, Christian fortitude, and meek forbearance has excited my admiration. As gold is purified by the fire of the furnace, so it is probable that some women, under the pressure of such afflictions, rise to an eminence of piety, to which in other circumstances they never could have attained. <coughs> but I must not indulge myself in speaking in a strain too laudatory of Christian mothers. Some have great weaknesses, the effects of which upon the character and destinies of their children are very unhappy. I, re I recollect you have once been acquainted with a Virginian planter of the best old stamp. He was rich, hospitable, kind-hearted, and better than all, truly pious. When he heard the gospel, his whole soul seemed to be laid open to the impression and the truth. And so susceptible was he that often, while the man of God described the love of a saviour, the large and not unmanly tear would trickle down his cheek. He was a man without guile, and you always might know where to find him. But I was grieved and surprised to find that his sons were all profligates. By drinking and gambling and other vices, they soon ruined their reputation, wasted their estates, injured their health, and shortened their lives. In searching for the cause of this wide departure, from the example of a good and affectionate father, I traced it to the injudicious indulgence of a fond mother. 
Not that she wished her son to become dissipated, but when they did wrong, she carefully concealed their conduct from their father, connived at their vices, and afforded them facilities of gratifying their corrupt propensities by plentifully supplying them with money. And with such care were their vices concealed from the unsuspecting father, that the first knowledge which he obtained was when his son's ruin was completed, and their habits so fixed, that all regard to decorum was laid aside, and even the displeasure of a father could be braved. Another class of mothers, <coughs> happily not numerous, injure their children by a discipline too rigorous. They expect by external restraints and confinements to preserve them from temptation. The general principle is good, that may be pushed too far. A gradual exposure to such temptations as must be encountered in the world is safer than for a son to be suddenly subjected to the whole influence of the world at once. If children dislike the severity of the discipline under which they are placed, they will be ingenious in finding opportunities of evading a yoke which they do not like to bear. And when they get free from parental restraint, they will be apt to run to greater excess than others. While sober, consistent piety in mothers has a powerful and lasting effect on children. Fanaticism has a contrary tendency. The children of parents who indulge in extravagant expressions of religious feeling and whose religion comes on in violent proxisms are in most cases devoid of reverence for sacred things and often show a disregard of moral principle. It is extremely important in the education and discipline of children not to confirm their notions of right and wrong by treating little matters with the same seriousness and severity as great. Our instructions and conduct towards children should be such as to present to their minds virtues and vices according to a just graduation. If we pursue a peccadillo with as much severity as a great crime, the danger is that a great crime will be committed with as little sense of its evil as a fault of a minor class. It is also dangerous to proclaim a crusade against some one vice and magnify its evil beyond all comparison, while other vices equally or more malignant pass unnoticed. So one virtue or duty may be held up so continually and placed in such bold relief that other virtues, equally important and valuable, are left concealed in the background. As in the Christian character, symmetry, or a due proportion of every grace, is essential to perfection. So in teaching morality, a strict regard should be had to the magnitude and proportion of every part of the system. Let all vice be treated as vice, but let not all vices be treated as equal. So let every virtue occupy its proper place and fill its due space. It is a good rule, even in the government of children, not to legislate too much. Vex them not with trivial and unnecessary rules. Train them to govern themselves as much as possible. That child, who is obedient only when the eye of the parent is on it, has not been properly managed. Allow children liberty in such things as are innocent, and to which they are inclined by the instinct of nature. It is a poor, 
short-sighted plan to keep children moping all day over their books. They learn far more that is valuable while sporting in the fields than we can teach them by such a process in the house. It is wonderful how much they learn without effort, both of words and things. We may even exceed the mark by inculcating religion upon their tender minds too incessantly. Mothers should watch the favorable moment for instilling religious instruction. One sentence at the favorable moment is better than a long lecture at an unseasonable time. Holiness cannot be rendered pleasing to the natural heart, but religious instruction may be made interesting. Our indirect methods of reaching the conscience are often better than the more direct. Occasional remarks, not seeming to be intended for them, are often noticed and remembered especially conversation with respectful strangers in their presence has a wonderful effect. Let your children come early into your company, that they may hear, that is, if the conversation be edifying. By eliciting remarks on certain subjects and ministers and other respectful persons in the hearing of children, you will be likely to produce greater effect than if the same things were addressed directly to them by their parents. Family slander is an evil against which mothers cannot too sedulously guard. There are some families who are extremely cautious about speaking evil of their neighbours out of their own houses, but there, but there they feel privileged and in the presence of their children allow themselves great liberties in introducing the characters of those with whom they are living ostensibly in the habits of friendly intercourse. This is not only an evil habit, and rarely contracted by children, but it is the most effectual method of teaching them to play the hypocrite, by constantly assuming the appearance of friendship, and using the language of kindness, where the contrary feeling is habitually cherished. It is impossible to entertain sentiments of true friendship towards those whom we are in the practice of maligning every day. O oh, mothers, guard your children against this common vice, so freely indulged, and so little censored by many. Akin to this, the less malignant, is the practice of ridiculing the foibles and caricaturing the imperfections or, or personal defects of our friends. In some whole families there exists a talent for mimicry. They can so exactly imitate the tones, gestures, attitudes and manners of others that the exercise of this faculty becomes a source of much amusement at the expense of their neighbours, especially when the quality of act or action imitated is a little exaggerated or distorted. This propensity should be carefully and resolutely repressed in young people. It is very apt to occasion a separation or alienation of affection among friends, for who among us is willing to be laughed at for the entertainment of others? There is no one thing on which mothers should insist more uniformly and peremptorily than that their children should tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Lying, above all other things, may be said to be the vice of children. We go astray from the womb speaking lies. Children soon learn that others can't look into their hearts. They will often therefore say what they know is not true from the confidence they cannot be detected. Keep a vigilant eye on this matter. 
and pass not slightly over an offence of this kind. Many worthy parents, I have observed, seem to know little or care little about the habit of fibbing to their children. Manifest by every proper means your utter detestation of lying in all its kinds and degrees. I would also caution mothers against the foolish ambition of trying to make prodigies of their children and against the vanity of so exaggerating their smart speeches and exploits as to make them appear to be prodigies. I would not be so rigid as to prohibit mothers from speaking of their own dear offspring or how to defend into the heart the mouth will speak. But I may advise you not to make your children the everlasting theme of your conversation, morning, noon, and night. Rest assured that other people do not take as much interest in the subject as you do. And while I would commend those mothers who are diligent in the instruction of their children, I would respectfully say, be thankful that they are not idiots, nor deformed, nor destitute of the common sense of human nature. But be not anxious that they should be thought prodigies. Children may be so trained as to perform wonders, but what good can come of it? Do we not see pigs trained in the same way? Exercise a salutary discipline towards your children. Even with the rod, when it is necessary, but let this species of discipline be the last resort, and use rather seldom. It is far better than a dark room, or starvation, or anything which keeps a child a long time in a bad humour. But carefully avoid chastisement and heat of passion, for this will do your children more harm than good. Keep your children as long as you can in your own house. Domestic feeling is a sacred tie which should be preserved fresh and strong as long as possible. Often mothers lose all their influence over sons by their being sent abroad to school. Have as much of your children's education, therefore, conducted at home as is practical. Be assured that no place is so favourable to the good feelings and morals of the young as the family circle, unless the family be destitute of religion and virtue. And for such I do not now write. Boarding schools for girls may be useful, but I would advise you to keep your daughters at home, under your own eye, and when they go to school in the day, let men come home by night. You may possibly find a better school by sending them abroad, but the sacrifice is too great, and the risk of evil habits and evil sentiments is not small. And as to your sons, if they must go abroad, Place them in the family of some pious man, and under the maternal care of some pious woman, where they may find a substitute and parental attention. While absent, let them return home as frequently as may be, that what I have called the monastic feeling may be preserved. If your sons must be put to a trade, or become clerks in a store or counting house, be very particular as to the character and conscientious fidelity of their master. It is lamentable to see how youth in these circumstances are neglected, and how they are exposed to temptations from which it is hardly possible they should escape without guilt and contamination. I would earnestly recommend it to mothers to keep up a correspondence by letter with their children when removed from the domestic roof. 
A single word of admonition and warning from the mother might be the means of reclaiming a beloved son from a verge or a precipice. But whatever else you neglect, omit not to follow your children when absent with your daily prayers. Very often this is the only thing which is left to mothers. Their children are either removed far from them, or if near, they have lost their influence over them. But there is one who is near to them, and who can influence them. O mothers, plead for your dear offspring at the throne of grace. Travel in birth for them a second time. God is gracious. God will regard the fervent, importunate cry of Christian mothers. Bespeak also the prayers of friends. Get them to unite with you in social prayer. This leads me to speak of those societies called maternal associations. If prudently and humbly conducted, they are calculated to be eminently useful. Let all parade and ostentation be avoided, and mothers may meet and pray for their dear children as often as they are disposed. Letter to a Mourning Afflicted Widow My dear friend, what a change in your circumstances and worldly prospects within a short time. A few months since, you appeared to be carried along in the full tide of prosperity. Everything seemed to smile around you, and probably you had no anticipation of the sad reverse which has occurred. Blessed with health and abundance, happy in the possession and regard of an excellent husband, and seeing around you lovely and promising children, who were the joy of your heart. But now, alas, you are a bereaved, desolate widow. You have experienced the greatest loss which you could experience of any earthly possession. And to increase the calamity, for afflictions are apt to come in clusters, another stroke has fallen on you, so that you have sorrow upon sorrow. Under such afflicting circumstances, What can I say to alleviate your distress? I'm afraid that I can do no more than to express my tender sympathy. Though far off from the scene of your suffering, I feel for you. I can weep with you. Officious efforts to check the swelling torrent of grief on such occasions are injudicious and rather tend to aggravate than relieve our misery. Nature must have its course. Tears of deep-rooted grief does not prevent, furnish almost the only mitigation of which the mourner is susceptible. And what nature demands, God does not forbid. There is no sin in the feelings of lively sorrow with much bereavement, which much such bereavement produce. The blessed Saviour did indeed forbid the daughters of Jerusalem to weep for him, because he had undertaken to bear the curse of God for us without alleviation. But he tells them to weep for themselves and their children. He did also exhort the believed widow of name not to weep. But the reason of this was that he intended immediately to restore to life her only son, then lying dead before her. When our blessed Lord came to Bethany and found the two sisters, Martha and Mary, in a state of deep distress on account of the recent death of their only brother, the support and protector of the family. Does he forbid their tears? No, the compassionate Jesus weeps with them. 
How interesting. How amiable. There's a kind of condescension and tender sympathy of the Son of God towards this afflicted family appear. They had reason to be surprised at his conduct beforehand, because when they sent for him, he delayed coming until their brother was dead. His motive for this delay they understood not. But when he came, they both remarked with sorrowful regret, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. And when he answered, Thy brother shall rise again, they still had no other apprehension of his meaning than that he should rise at the last day. But his benevolent purpose was to restore to them their beloved brother by raising him from the grave where he had lain four days. But so deeply was his compassionate heart affected by the sight of the tears and distress of his beloved friends that he not only wept with them but groaned in, in his spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? And before he would enter the house to rest himself after his journey, he must visit the grave of his friend, that he might at once relieve the aching hearts of these pious women. But no such relief can be expected, now be expected. Jesus, the Almighty Saviour, who is the resurrection and the life, no longer sojourns among men. But it should still be a consolation to mourners that, though exalted at the right hand of God, the compassionate Redeemer is accessible, and that his tender sympathy is still retained. For we have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of infirmity. He knows as well what his disciples suffer, as if he were on earth and is able to aid them and to comfort them in all their sorrows. I cannot then give you better advice than to look unto Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of God. I know of no consideration which is more effectual to reconcile us to bear with submission our heavy afflictions than the contemplation of our divine Redeemer waiting through floods of sorrow for our sake, yea, overwhelmed with a weight of distress which pressed him to the ground in a bloody agony and caused him to cry out with an exceeding bitter cry, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. And on the cross to explain, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Did Jesus thus suffer, and shall I repine? He was the Son of God. He was holy, he was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separated from sinners. And yet for our sake he bore this infinite pressure of grief. This suggests other consideration, another consideration, which I have always found when I could feel its force, to have a powerful effect in repressing a murmuring and repining disposition. It is that we suffer less than we deserve. God afflicts us, it may be severely, but his strokes are lighter than our sins. If we were not for his unmerited mercy, we should now be in hell. Add to this, that God does not willingly afflict. He takes no pleasure in the sufferings of any of his creatures, much less in the sorrows of his children. But he chastises them for their real good. 
Why some are so much afflicted than others, we do not know. But we do know that all things work together for good to them that love God, and that although no chastening for the present is joyous, but grievous, yet afterwards it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them who are exercised thereby. The afflicted mourner finds it hard to believe this promise, and cannot see how it is possible that such a calamity should be of any benefit. But God's word is to be credited in opposition to our own feelings and to all appearances. He has ways of working which we do not now understand, but shall know hereafter. He can make our bitterest anguish a sanitary medicine for our distressed souls. Our whole course through this world is intended to be a state of trial and discipline, and therefore it is ordained that through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom. And all who are seen standing on Mount Zion, clothed in white robes and palms in their hands, had come out of great tribulation. Another consideration of great weight in reconciling us to our lot is the shortness of time and our nearness to the joys of heaven. When by faith we can form some just estimate on this matter, the keenest sufferings and most distressing bereavements sink into its insignificance. Who in our times suffer as did the primitive Christians? And yet Paul calls their light, their afflictions light and momentary, and we may be satisfied to bear them, for they work out for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And again he says, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And it is reasonable to think that the rest that remaineth for the people of God will be enjoyed with a higher zest by those who pass into heaven from a state of affliction than by others. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.